It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Tim Cross, the Economist science correspondent. Coming up on today's show, how poking around in the Greenland ice sheet can tell us about the economic history of ancient Europe. What they were looking at were peaks and valleys in the lead emissions, and they were correlating that to the economic events that were going on at the time. And how new insect-sized drones are causing a buzz. It's a few millimetres wide and a few millimetres long, and it weighs just less than a couple of toothpicks. But first, the scientific dividends of peace in Colombia. Colombia Bio is an initiative of the Colombian government, set up after a peace deal in 2016 between that government and a group of left-leaning rebels called the FARC. It's an attempt to go into the formerly rebel-held areas and see what kind of wildlife is living in the forest. So far, the project has sent 13 different expeditions staffed by botanists, mycologists, entomologists, ornithologists, herpetologists, and many other sorts of biologists. I'm joined by another biologist, Jeff Carr, the Economist science editor and my boss, to explore exactly what's going on. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Tim. So, Jeff, whose idea is this initiative and, and why does it exist now? Well, it comes from the very top. The idea is the president's Juan Santos. He came up with it and he's pushed it. And uh, because it's come from the top, it has actually happened. And it's only possible to do it now because the government signed this peace deal with, with FARC, with whom they've been at war for decades. That's absolutely correct. The FARC held uh, at one point about 40% of the country, and they obviously discouraged people from coming into it. Um, they also uh, ran parts of it in ways which were helpful to wildlife. For example, they had rules about fishing, which stopped uh, the overexploitation of the rivers. And because they didn't run cattle and didn't cut timber, a lot of the um, primary forest has survived. They did knock some of it down, of course, to grow uh, coca because that was a source of revenue. But um, by and large, they left things alone. And so why is the president interested? Is he a keen biologist or is there, is there something a bit more hard-edged to it than that? He's, he, he's not a keen biologist, although he has something of an environmental track record. But he has a vision of Colombia as being some sort of biopower in the future. Colombia's actually got the second largest terrestrial biodiversity of any country on the planet after Brazil. And that's because it's in the tropics and because it has very varied topography. So there's a lot of scope for evolution to create new species. But it hasn't been that well catalogued because of the FARC. So the idea of Columbia Bio is to create, as you said, teams of various sorts of biologists, to a large extent uh, Colombians, but also in collaboration with uh, a number of other countries, including Britain, uh, who are sending over what one might describe as biological mercenaries to assist the regular troops of the Colombian universities. So they're going in, they're taking uh, lots of samples. I went on one of the trips and uh, the pruning shears and the tweezers and everything, and the nets were out all over the place. A lot of the species, of course, are already known, but we don't know exactly what's where, or they don't know exactly what's where. And so what exactly does it mean, this idea of being a biopower then? 
That's a little hazy, it has to be said. The ultimate goal, which is certainly out of reach at the moment, is to use information about the genes and the metabolic pathways in species discovered. But it's all very speculative. And to be honest, the country doesn't have the infrastructure to to do that itself at the moment, although there are plans to try and build that infrastructure up. Uh, At the moment, it's uh, much more about ecotourism and extracting the sorts of forest products that can command a a premium in the shops. And you mentioned that this has sort of backing from the top, but the president has served his two terms and can't serve any more. So do we know whether his successors are, are keen? The truth is we don't really know that. Some of them have said that they're interested in uh, um, sustainable economics. One of them is a maths professor and may have some intellectual interest in the in the matter. I don't think anyone's hostile to it. The question is how high up the priority list it will be in a country which is trying to come to terms with the end of a very long and bitter civil war and still has a serious drug problem and also has a significant problem of corruption. So there are many things to worry about. Um, and there are also uh, vested interests which are want to go into the land that the uh, that the FARC has evacuated and cut down the trees and mine and ranch, and all of these things are perfectly reasonable. The question is uh, arriving at a balance, so we don't know. I think uh, we'll have to see who gets elected and see whether their rhetoric matches the reality. Maybe you'll be back there in a few years. Jeff. thanks very much. Thanks, Tim. Next up is economic history. And for me, I studied this at university, which is possibly something I shouldn't reveal on a science podcast. That means rummaging around in libraries and museums and things like that, looking at parchments and clay tablets. But there are other ways that might be even more reliable. One of them has been detailed in a paper just published by Joseph McConnell, a researcher at the Desert Research Institute in Nevada, and his colleagues from the universities of Oxford and Copenhagen. And it involves ice, specifically long cores of the stuff drilled out of the Greenland ice sheet. To understand why they're so interested in this frozen archive, I'm joined by Chiara Eisner, the Economist Science intern. Hi, Chiara. Hi. So, Chiara, the researchers had these big, long ice cores, which contain ice that was laid down hundreds and thousands and even millions of years ago. What exactly is it that they're looking for inside those cores? So, in this case, they were looking for lead. Okay. And the lead tells them what exactly? So, the lead can be indicative of various things. In this case, they were looking at the connection between lead production and economic productivity. And they were seeing a connection between lead that was used through mining and smelting processes to produce coins, weapons, various things that you'd use metals to create. So what they're finding is pollution, effectively. It's lead that got into the atmosphere through different kinds of industrial processes, drifted over Greenland, and has ended up stuck in these ice cores. Exactly. And lead in the atmosphere correlates with the amount of economic activity going on around the world. Yes, it can. Um, And in this case, the researchers were careful to make sure that it was reflective of just the European industrial activity. Because as, as you're indicating, this activity was occurring in different places around the world. But Joe McConnell did various checks to make sure that the ice that he was sampling wasn't picking up on emissions from, for example, Britain or from China, which were also industrially active locations. And so they were specifically interested in the economic history of Europe, the continent of Europe, so not including Britain, not including China, India, the Middle East, anywhere else. They just wanted to find out what was going on in in Europe hundreds and thousands of years ago. 
Yes. I think the researchers from Oxford were particularly interested in that period of history and that geographic location. And they reached out to McConnell to see if he could analyze these samples from the core to help them create a more precise, better dated record than what had been done before. There had been other studies using ice core data and specifically metallic sediment in ice core data to create this kind of chronological history. But the technology was much less precise at the time, and they were able to specify to a far less precise detail than this research was able to get to. So what kind of things could they see when they started looking at the the lead records? What they were looking at were peaks and valleys in the lead emissions, and they were correlating that to uh, the economic events that were going on at the time. So what sorts of things were they, could they see? The research confirmed things that were already widely known and understood to be true in history and economics. Some of those were, for example, you'd see uh, an increase in lead emissions during the Pax Romana, which was a period of time which everyone really agrees was a period of prosperity for Rome. Uh, So it makes sense that there would be a peak in lead emissions at that time because they'd be theoretically using the mining and the smelting to produce more coins to pay their people with, more weapons to further expand, and they just had time to invest in those kinds of activities. And there's peaks during wars as well, aren't there? I mean, you said you, you can see the signature of the Punic Wars, Rome against Carthage, in the data. Yeah, they mentioned that the wars were interesting because during periods of war, there was fluctuation. So sometimes you would see a peak and sometimes you'd see a valley. In the instance of Carthage that you mentioned, there was a peak because they think at that time the Romans were needing to create more coins so that they could pay their mercenaries Mm. that had helped them do that successful siege. In some instances, though, you'd see a valley because the wars were actually disrupting the mining activity by way of taking the miners out because they had to be working as a soldier or just physically disrupting the mining locations. And so that's when you'd see a dip during a war. So it sounds like historians should maybe be getting out of the library a bit more and and working more with scientists and looking at at what you can learn from this sort of physical evidence. Yes, and it's certainly interesting when they do. This research is quite unique and it tells us some pretty incredible things, which is sadly ironic because it leads to the realization that the pollution that our current society is creating is actually threatening the ice that was used for this kind of really profound analysis. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, what, what kind of history do we want to leave? What kind of impact do we want to leave? How do we want to be remembered by historians in 2,000 years? Where there might not be any ice to even go and look at. Exactly. Kiara, thanks very much. Thank you, Tim. If you've got thoughts on anything we've covered today, please tell us about them. You can put them in an email and send it our way to radio at economist.com or you can catch us on Twitter at Economist Radio. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer and you can get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Finally, drones are getting smaller and smaller and the latest bit of uh, buzz, sorry, is around an insect-sized robot which is due to be presented at a robotics conference in Brisbane later this month. It's designed by Sawyer Fuller and his colleagues from the University of Washington. To discuss their project, I'm joined by the Economist science correspondent, Anano Bhattacharya. Hi, Anano. Hi, Tim. 
So this is billed as a drone the size of a fly. Is it really that small? Or is this just a bit of poetic license? No, it really is. It's a few millimetres wide and a few millimetres long, and it weighs just less than a couple of toothpicks. So I imagine, you know, most people, when you say drones to them, they're going to think of some kind of quadcopter, you know, a parrot or something like that, powered by a lithium-ion battery and all the rest. I'm guessing when you go down this small, you can't just take something off the shelf and sort of shrink it in every dimension. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Helicopter rotors just don't work at these sorts of scales because airs like a soup becomes very viscous. So rotors just can't give you that kind of thrust. So the team took a leaf out of nature's book and they used wings instead. And those wings were made of um, a sort of plastic film and they flap them up and down using a piezoelectric ceramic, which bends whenever you run electric current through it. So this isn't the first time people have made something this tiny, is it? So, so what makes this different from what's gone before? Yeah, so the team had been involved with a previous project a few years ago where they'd actually managed to make a similar fly with wings and so on. But that one was connected by a cable to a computer which did all sorts of important stuff in terms of controlling it, but also uh, it was connected to a power source. Now, the innovation here is that this thing is wireless, So it's not connected to anything by a cable, it's completely free-flying. Yeah, and how they've done that is they've added a little solar cell, which just weighs a a few um, uh, milligrams, and pointed a laser at this solar cell to to power the fly. Is that quite awkward then? Because presumably if there's no laser, that means it can't fly. So at the moment, this thing is basically hopping because it takes off, leaves the beam, the laser beam, and then drops back down to Earth. They're hoping in the next iteration that they'll be able to ceiling mount a laser and then track their fly all over a room so they'll be able to power it wherever it goes. Another option which they're looking at is because it's solar-powered, during the day it can hop. So it can hop around places. And just to end this on a more practical question, are there any particular uses they're looking at for this thing? First, they will use it to try and understand insect flight because now you have this thing which is wireless and hops about. You haven't had that before. It's a much better model for how insects actually fly. Now, looking into the future, of course, if you do manage to get autonomous drones of this size, they can access inaccessible places looking for survivors in a you know fallen building or something like that. There's all sorts of military applications too. Tiny swarms of spy bots, <laughs> that kind <laughs> of thing. That's the sort of thing you've been watching your Black Mirror. Cheery thought to end Babbage on. Thanks very much, Anna. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or you can find us online at economist.com. I'm Tim Cross. In London, this is The Economist. 